Well, 500 years ago, the Reformation started, uh, give or take, a little bit, but we've been uh, recognizing October 31st, 1517, as sort of the, the big spark that kicked off the Reformation. We've been looking at it over the last five weeks now, and we've come to the end at this point. We've been looking at the Reformation uh, through sort of the way that the outcomes are summarized in, in very brief form, uh, which are the five solas. The title has been Soli Deo Gloria, uh, for God's glory alone, solas being a Latin for alone. And we've talked then about God's glory alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, and this week, grace alone. Uh, and it's important that they're all tied together, but once we hit the point of Christ, it, it leads very quickly to the issues of faith and grace alone. And even this week, we tie faith and grace together pretty closely, that those two uh, do go hand in hand, even though grace is given. Uh, if it's going to have any effect in our lives, there needs to be an element of faith. So they do go together. And, and really one of the key ways that uh, the, uh, the Reformation stated, or one of the key issues that came out of it, was the, the statement that salvation is by grace alone through faith, or through faith alone. Um, this is really the core of the whole thing. Now, they looked to Romans, uh, as we've been doing, but you can also find that particular phrase very similar in Ephesians 2, uh, that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And one of the things I pointed out a few weeks ago, scholars have pointed out that the Reformation really was answering four questions. It wasn't that the Reformers sat down together and said, now let's come up with four questions we think we ought to answer. This just happens to be, if you look back, you can see these are kind of the four questions that were, were really stewing for them. Uh, and it wasn't new in church history. These had always been stewing, and, and, and people had been answering these questions uh, for a long time. It's just that given the time and circumstance, uh, the issues rose up in a new and different way um, and had opportunity to really take off, if you will. So they were asking questions like, how is a person saved? Which you can see from the statement, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. How is a person saved? They're justified because of the work of Christ. There's no other way. It's not by works. It's not by works and the work of Christ combined together. It's by the work of Christ that we are justified and put right with God. Now, of course, faith is the, the taking or grasping hold of that reality, but it's not the doing of the work that makes that a reality. So how is a person saved? They're justified by Christ alone. Where does religious authority lie? They pushed back very hard against uh, religious authorities as far as, as the hierarchy within the church and church tradition itself. Not that those things were useless. They just said that's not where our foundation, our authoritative word comes from. Those things are of value. Let's make sure we hear that. Uh, within, because in the Protestant, in particular the evangelical, which is more of an umbrella that hangs over Protestantism, we're part of that. In the evangelical world, we tend to push and say, well, all that stuff is totally useless. Well, no, church tradition isn't useless. They used it quite regularly, the reformers did. But they said, our authority lies in scripture, which gets its authority from God. That's the be all and end all. That's how we weigh out what we, should, what we should use and what we shouldn't from church tradition. What people in the past, theologians in the past said, we weigh it out by scripture. Leadership in the church mattered to them, but we weigh out that leadership based on scripture. All of those things. That's where religious authority is. What is the church? We didn't really answer that question in the sermon series, but long and short of it is, they said it's the believers gathered together. 
Anybody who said yes to Jesus Christ who's a disciple, that's the church. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, then you're not part of the church. That's how they would have said it. They had kind of differing ways of going about it, but that's the long and short of it. And they said especially the church isn't just the believers gathered together. It's the believers gathered together celebrating the sacraments. When they're when they celebrating the sacraments, there is the church, they said. And finally, and this pushes us into today's territory, uh, what is the essence of Christian living? What's, what's the way of grace, basically? And the way of grace we can see in today's passage, uh, which will be uh, Romans 6, uh, it's holiness or sanctification. That's, that's how you live in to this grace that's been given to us. But that only makes sense, question four, only makes sense when we know who our authority is in question two. Right? These, these questions do have a, a relationship with one another. So we're talking about grace primarily today, which is the beginning of the essence of Christian living, if you will. And let's just give it a quick, simple definition. Again, from Easton's Bible Dictionary, which we've been used, it's God's forgiving mercy. Isn't that a simple one to write down? God's forgiving mercy. And God gives that at God's pleasure, not because we did anything to deserve it. God gives it just because. Because God loves us. And that's who God is. Now, if you look at the Reformation, there have been, I don't know if you've done any Google searching or anything right now and just looked for, it's, it's been all over the news, especially in the month of October, and all kinds of outlets and sources. You'll see, I mean, from National Geographic to the New York Times, there's articles on the Reformation, not just Christian sources. But there are criticisms that get launched at, at the Reformation, and some of those are fair and some of those aren't. One of the ones that perhaps is in the fair territory uh, that you hear but, but misses the point of the intent of the Reformation is the social implications of the Reformation. The intent of, of what the Reformers were trying to do was say, okay, we're not going to rest on church tradition and church leadership and those things as our authority. They have value, but they're not our authority. Scripture that is, God's word to us, is our authority. That's where we're going to uh, make sure everything weighs, up, weighs out against. But the social reality is that, that the door was opened wider than Luther or Zwingli or any of these other guys really realized. And it, it, the door has continued to be open. It's a fair criticism. So when Luther in 1521 stands before the Diet of Worms, uh, he's essentially been excommunicated, but he can get back in if he just recants all of his works. Uh, he stands before these uh, really high, I mean, the, the emperor himself, the, the head of the Rome, Holy Roman Empire there. He stands before these guys and he says, my conscience is captive to the word of God. You hear that word conscience. And he goes on even further and he says it would go against conscience or to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And so what some people do is they look at what Luther has said and they celebrate that Luther is saying goodbye to all religious authority. It all comes down to my conscience and what my conscience says. Well, that's not what Luther said. But that's how it's been interpreted by a great many people. And you'll, so if you do a Google search, you'll find some articles that will point this out. That we are, because of Luther's work, free of all religious authority. Isn't that a wonderful thing, some of these articles say. And that's how uh, you can get into the world of, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? 
free of all religious authority. I can make up whatever I want because it's all down to my conscience. Well, Luther, that was not the intent. The door might have been open to that. So I was in a conversation with somebody, just to give an example, uh, recently, um, and I, I really tried to veer into an evangelistic conversation, and sure enough, we, the door was open. It was great. And so this young man starts talking to me about how he's a Christian. He went to church with his grandma, and so he considers himself a Christian, but kind of. But he likes Taoism and Taoist philosophy, so he's a Taoist Christian. Well, that doesn't really work together. That opens up a whole lot of questions, right, all of a sudden, to put those things together. Uh, the way that the conversation went, I wasn't, I wasn't convinced that the Christian part was really that deep for him, but the Taoist part really was. He, was. he was merging two ideas together. And I've had plenty of conversations with people who are trying to merge together multiple and sometimes competing religious values to make up their own religion. So it's a criticism that could be launched at Luther and, and some of the reformers that they opened a door. They didn't realize how wide they were kicking it open when they walked through it. Uh, but we should point out that regardless of how wide the door is open, we still live under the authority of something, someone, or some entity in some way. We're under some authority in some way, whether we, we, we want to be under the authority of self or God or whatever. We have to acknowledge that first and foremost. And so we're talking about grace today, and, and that the grace idea, and we'll compound it with faith from last week, and we'll see how it, it interacts with this authority issue, is that faith is our reception of God's grace. It's saying yes to what God has done. And grace is God's work of reclaiming his beloved creation. That at that point then, if we take that by faith, we actually are living under the authority of God by accepting that grace. You don't earn grace. It's given. God gives it freely, and we're asked to receive it and then live under that authority. So let's read Romans 6, 15 through 23 today as we consider grace. And I encourage you to open up and read it in whatever format you do. Uh, let's start at verse 15, where Paul says, and it won't be on the screen. It's a lot to take in on the screen. What then, Paul says, shall we sin because we are no longer under, not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations, just as you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you go back to verse 16... 
Paul brings us into the imagery that he's using here in that first paragraph especially. So he's talking about, well, if, if you're under grace, that doesn't mean you should sin more. But he says in verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So he's talking about authority there and who's in charge. Uh, he's talking about ancient slavery, which uh, he's using it as a specific way to get into this. This is something that would have been familiar to people. This is not slavery in the way that we experienced it in our country. They were different in how they worked out, although slavery is still wrong in either case. So think ancient slavery in the Roman Empire. It was uh, it's an essential part unfortunately, of their economic system. You, you couldn't pull out uh, from that system, but it wasn't a class-based system either. And, and Paul's going to talk about voluntary slavery. But if you want to get an idea of, of um, you know, there, there were slaves at all kinds of different levels, sometimes even freely on the street, you might not be able to tell who's a slave and who's not. So it's not a class-based system. There are some who educated uh, within the home. They were a household servant. There were some who were at the very bottom doing some of the worst jobs. You could find uh, the slave system was all over, permeated their society. Paul's using an, an example that they don't have to take a commentary off the shelf to understand, right? This is going to be something everybody has experienced with every day. And it's going to be a very real example to them when he uses it. If you want a good example of ancient slavery uh, and, and not class-based so you can kind of understand how it worked, the book The Robe uh, is a very interesting read. It's, it's been around for decades now. They made a terrible movie of it in the 60s. Uh, but about the, the, the man, Roman soldier, who got Jesus' garment. Uh, it's, it's a made-up story about that and a very interesting read about that. You might, I just commend it to you anyways. But don't watch the movie. It's a terrible movie. Uh, they, they ruined the whole book. But Paul specifically speaks of voluntary slavery here, which is an interesting idea, I think, to us. But in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, this happened from time to time. People would, could use the slave system as a means to an end. That is to say, the status that they had in life might not be as good as if they went into slavery on the other side. They actually could improve their status in certain cases uh, and be manumitted at some point or buy their own freedom and actually have elevated their status in one way or another. It wasn't always the case. Some people might go into debt and do this and it's not going to be better. It's just going to be that they're going to be able to pay off things or whatever. But Paul says, don't you understand either way, when you voluntarily put yourself in that position, you're under somebody else's authority. It's an example that they're going to use. You're putting yourself under the authority of something or someone for a specific end, he says, when you voluntarily do this. And, and we can understand that. We do that as well. We will sometimes put ourselves uh, in a position uh, where we feel like we need something or we lack something. I lack happiness. I'm going to do things to make myself happy or to achieve happiness. And we might put ourselves under the authority of something else. We might want to make ourselves better or better ourselves. So we might uh, learn, you know, get, get in school again or something like that. We're kind of under, in a sense, the authority of something else or security. We want to be safer, so we'll give up certain freedoms in order to be safer. Any of those things could work out in the same way. Paul says, what, what, you're, what you're doing then, he says, just so we know, you're a slave. Uh, you're putting yourself under the authority of something else. We can do the exact same thing with sin. You can be a slave to sin. You're under the authority of sin. And he says, it leads to death. 
That's the only direction that that goes. And in fact, if you're going to be a slave to righteousness, either way you're under the authority of something, but they're means to an end, but one's a completely different end. Let's talk about the righteousness, shall we? That's what he says. Let's, let's look at that direction. But Paul says when we face the reality by our very nature, if we haven't chosen to put ourselves under the authority of God, then we are living in disgrace, not God's grace. We're slaves to sin, not slaves to righteousness. In the ancient slave system, manumission, to be free from sin, was actually not that uncommon. Uh, somebody could purchase their, their um, freedom. They could age out. 30 or 40, roughly speaking, somebody could age out in the days of Paul and be free. We don't get those options. Uh, we, don't get, uh, we can't purchase our sin and we can't really age into God's grace, but we will age out into death, uh, Paul would lead us to believe. Um, God's already done this for us. God's already given us the possibility of freedom from sin. But for a lot of us, what ends up happening is, is one or the other direction. Some of us have a hard time accepting that the work is already done and we feel like we have to do more in some way. We couldn't possibly get this just free. There's got to be some other strings attached or something else I've got to do. Uh, and for some of us... Uh, we, we still feel like we can piece together other things, so we're still living under the authority of both. We're trying to live under the authority of God's grace, but still kind of under the authority of a few other things, too, in the power of sin. Either way, it's like being on the giant hamster wheel of works, and, and we need to just get off because we're never going to get there that way. God's already done the work. Paul also has, he's, he's probably doing what Paul does in mixing a lot of metaphors here in, in the way he does slavery because he kind of uses, he kind of advances the thought but he probably has in his mind as well a little Old Testament imagery when it comes to slavery. Uh, and that, uh, Leviticus 25, uh, 54 and 55 is a great verse to understand the reality of what God is doing with his grace. Uh, in Leviticus it says, even if someone is not redeemed, and this is talking about the year of Jubilee, even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We're part of God's creation as well. Just like God covenanted with uh, Israel and rescued them. That covenant extends to us. By his act of grace, God is redeeming his beloved. His creation. You and me who were captive and slaves to sin that we would, in fact, be under the authority of God. That's what grace is trying to accomplish. And Paul goes on further, then. Let's go to verses 22 and 23 of chapter 6 in Romans again. Um, Paul talks about moving from deficits to benefits, really. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. Some of you have sanctification in there. Same thing going on. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we said at the beginning, faith is the reception of God's grace. Grace is God's work of reclaiming his beloved creation. And he's given it to us freely. But Paul tells us that when you receive grace, you're now called to live under the rules of the grace giver. We've been talking about authority. That's how it works. 
What's, what's interesting here is if you look in the bigger picture of what Paul's done, I, I, I read about three chapters of the Bible each day, um, and I, I'm really an advocate of reading the Bible as a, a whole rather than little chunks and verses. Um, it's not bad to do that. I like reading it as a whole because you tend to see some of the bigger themes that are there. What's really interesting in the book of Romans is we're in the midst of a bigger theme that Paul is, is presenting to us. So the book of Romans is 16 verse chapters long. In the midst of that, you have Romans 5, 1 through 8, 39. If you want, we're going to biblically nerd out for just a moment, all right? So Romans 5, 1 through 8, 39 is what's called an inclusio. It's like a giant parenthesis in the middle of the text to make a big point about the whole thing. And so there's a, an image here that will come up with a yellow line at the top. Thanks, uh, Larry. What Paul has been arguing in this whole section and continues to argue is this whole transition in various different ways. He says what we're called to do is move from Adam to Christ. This is what God's grace does. To move from sin to righteousness, death to life, law to grace, flesh to spirit. He argues that whole thing. It's even in the bigger picture. If you take an even bigger uh, understanding, what Paul is using uh, is what we run into in the Old Testament all throughout. That God is moving us from this present age into the age to come. The kingdom of God. And, and the ancient expectation, the, the Old Testament expectation was that there was going to be a hard line. The age to come would end. The kingdom of God would begin. But Jesus comes and it doesn't work that way. It's like they mesh together. But we're still called by God's grace to transition from living in sin to living as Christ. From living in sin to living as righteous. From the way of death to the way of life. You can see the transition we're called into. So that grace compels us. To live in the age to come, even though the age to come isn't fully here. Grace compels us to live as kingdom people, though the world around us does not. And that means that as we go around trying to live as righteous, as the sanctified, as the grace given, as those who have life, we're going to run into issues from time to time. It's going to cause tension. But we're called to live that way. It'll cause tension. That's why we run into issues of, of uh, issues of life and when does life begin and those kinds of questions. Or human sexuality. What is it and what are the extents of it? That's why we run into issues about money. Whose is it? How do we use it? About war, about individual sovereignty, about what we watch, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, what we listen to. Because as kingdom people, we're called to live on that right side of that column. As those who follow Christ. As those who are given grace, not living by the law, as those who are living by the spirit and not under the sinful nature, the flesh. That's the bigger picture Paul is calling us to through Jesus Christ. Two things then about grace uh, that are worth rounding out here. One is that, and this is a thought taken from Martin Luther. One is that grace makes God's way lovable. Because some people look at what's on the, the right side of that chart and it seems plain, but then when it starts to work out in real life, it seems difficult all of a sudden and even unlovable. But we're slaves to God. We're, we're under his uh, allegiance and control. We've shifted uh, who our authority is if we've come to Christ and accepted and received God's grace. So Martin Luther writes about this, pretty much the same thing you see there. He says, grace makes the law lovable to us. So there is then no sin anymore, and the law is no longer against us, but one with us. That is to say, we're walking in, in holiness, 
with God. We don't feel like we're at odds with God because we've received his grace and we're trying to walk with him. We're, we're empowered by the Spirit to actually uh, enjoy God's ways, even when it seems in contrast to the world around us. It's going to be lovable to us. Some people in, in the world around us, and maybe you're even one of these people, uh, think that the Bible is boring, that prayer is useless, and church, what a waste, right, of time. Why would we do that? Obviously, you're here, so you don't think church is a waste of time. I'm happy about that. But this, because of those things, this is one of the reasons that people want to buy into the idea of making up your own religion and doing your own thing. But Paul says, then we're slaves to sin when we do that. We're not living under the authority of the one who's given us grace and salvation. But when we accept that grace by faith, it means a change of mind. So those things might begin as mysterious. Why would we put our authority in this book? Why would we come together and gather as God's people? Why would we respond in prayer to what we read in this book and with God's people? They might start as mysterious, but they move to being lovely and then life-altering. The more we dig into those, the more grace takes hold. Secondly, grace makes God's way not just lovable, but livable. That is, the path of sanctification is possible because of the power of the Spirit working in us. But it's got to come out of us. right? This isn't just an inner working, but something that's got to come out of us. I don't know about you, but sometimes extending grace can be difficult some days with some people. Anybody else? I won't take a show of hands, but some days it's hard. But the fact that God did it with you and me means that we need to show it to God's creation, even when it's not shown to us. And we're, we're kind of astounded. We're, we're heartened, but we're astounded when grace is extended in times where it seems like it shouldn't be, right? Uh, Pope John Paul II, years and years and years ago, was shot, and what did he do? He forgave his would-be assassin, right? But we might say, but that's the Pope, right? He's supposed to do that kind of thing. Just a couple years ago, the Charleston church shooting, right? There was videos of that first court appearance, if you remember, and family saying, I don't hate you for what you did. I forgive you. Grace extended. I mean, it made the rounds, didn't it? People were heartened. They said, wow, that's amazing. And even this last week with the church shooting in Texas, there were articles coming out from those who had been through similar experiences saying, what needs to happen is they need to learn to forgive because if you hold on to anything else of this, it's just going to eat away at you. I'm not saying that's easy, but I'm saying grace and forgiveness extended in those most difficult times is rather astounding, isn't it? And, and we actually like it. We live grace when we recognize that God has made it possible in even the most impossible circumstances. I mean, grace was exhibited to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were doing the complete opposite of what God would desire, that's when he sent his most beloved and cherished, his son, to die for us. Extend that grace at no cost to us and at great cost to him. And say, now are you in to a new way? We're shown through the cross that grace is possible. And we're supposed to then extend that grace and live it. And it must 
be practiced if we're God's people. It must be practiced so that grace becomes to us like breathing the air around us. That it's our natural rhythm and it's natural to us. And so we need to practice it daily. We need to be in the business of thanking and praising God regularly for how God continues to take care of us and bless us, even when it's difficult to do it. And we need to extend grace to those around us. Now, it's pretty easy to do when our friends and family are, are responding nicely to us, but there are some days when people push your buttons, right? How's grace going to work on those days? It's pretty easy when you're at work and you've got your work buddies who are, or your friends who are easy to get along with and you work well, but then there's the one who comes around who's generally a jerk to everybody. How does grace get extended there, especially when they turn around? How do you respond when they're not listening and walk away? Because if we can't extend grace in these smaller and simpler ways when something really happens, we can't expect that we're going to extend grace in those cases. The best part of us aren't aren't going to be amplified at those moments. No, we're called to extend grace and practice it. Because at our worst, God extended it to us. And we need to be ready to extend it and live it out at any point in time. You see, faith is our reception of God's grace. It's that thing that God's given freely, but we've accepted it then. And we're going to live under the authority of God and God's way and God's grace. And it's his reclaiming of his beloved creation. Have you taken hold of that grace today? Father, we don't just want to pray that your grace would be uh, sufficient or enough today. We know it is. We want to pray that we can practice it today. May you instill in us the recognition of the various and many ways that you've blessed us in this life. So that we'll turn that back to blessing towards you. To grace towards you. Even when things seem like they're at their worst. That we will look out to those around us and see that they are your beloved creation in need of your grace as well. And we're called to extend it. Because we live under your authority, we're called to be your grace in this world. That they would see it and respond. That they would recognize in us that we're not responding as people living under the sinful flesh would respond. That people who are living by the law would respond that we're responding with a heart that is in tune with you and your ways of holiness, and that that comes out of us as simply as breathing. Father, would you put your grace in us this morning for those of us who are feeling like we need an extra dose of grace this morning, God. Would you lavish it on us this morning? And would you allow us, if we're feeling that extra need for grace, to share it with those around us this morning? Father, we want to be a graceful and grace-filled people. Please fill us this morning that we would take that grace with us as we leave. We pray this in your name. Amen.